This is episode 172 of the Small Your Pride podcast, and today we have two guests. The first is Lindsay Parker. She received her undergraduate degree in communication sciences and disorders from the University of Oklahoma and her master's in communication disorders from the University of Texas at Dallas. She worked for Baylor Healthcare System across the medical SLP continuum, including acute care, inpatient rehab, and outpatient, and loved serving as a graduate student supervisor. In 2015, she co-founded a local mobile fees company in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. She now works full-time as a mobile fees endoscopist and clinical sales specialist for Carolina Speech Pathology. When she's not scoping patients or completing in-services, Lindsay enjoys chasing after her two young kiddos, spending time with family, cooking, and spin classes. Second, we have Morgan Mendenhall. She is a registered licensed dietitian. She received her undergraduate degree and completed her internship and clinical rotations at the University of Oklahoma and moved to Dallas shortly thereafter. She worked in the acute care setting for three years, primarily with oncology patients, patients with GI disease, and patients admitted to the critical care units. She now works as an outpatient dietitian with Texas Oncology. She's very passionate about nutritional science and how it relates to overall patient care. In her free time, she loves cooking and hanging out with her sisters, nieces, and nephews in Dallas. Pre-COVID, she also enjoyed traveling and yoga. And the big surprise is that they are sisters. So I love this episode so much. I learned a ton from them. And I hope it's just as valuable for you guys too. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MetaSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, you guys. Hi. Good morning. All right. So we are, we have a wonderful sister duo here this morning. We have Lindsay and Morgan. If you guys want to introduce who you are, Lindsay, go first. Sure. So my name is Lindsay Parker and I'm a speech language pathologist. I received my master or sorry, my bachelor's in communication sciences and disorders from the University of Oklahoma. And then I received my master's in communication disorders from the University of Texas at Dallas. And I went on from there to work for Baylor Healthcare System across the continuum in acute care and patient rehab and outpatient. In 2015, I co-founded a local mobile fees company in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And now I work for Carolina Speech Pathology as a mobile fees endoscopist and a clinical sales specialist. Awesome. All right. And Morgan? I'm Morgan Mendenhall. I've been a registered dietitian for a little over three years. I also attended the University of Oklahoma and graduated with a bachelor's in nutritional science. I've spent the majority of my career in the acute care setting, also within the Baylor and Scott and White system, working in the hospital on the oncology, ortho, GI, and critical care units. 
I have recently transitioned into an outpatient setting where I work with patients undergoing cancer treatment or support them during their survivorship. Awesome. All right. So Morgan is my go-to girl for all things <laughs> dietitian related, yeah. whether it be personal for my own <laughs> needs um, and definitely for our patients, because it's an area that has, you know, so much overlap that um, I just never really felt like I got good info about yeah. that. So I'm lucky to have her and so glad that she went into this field so that I can learn from her. Yeah. How cool. Did you, did you guys always have kind of I guess I'm I'm so fascinated by the sister SLP dietitian (laughs) relationship. It's like just so beautiful. Did you, have you guys always kind of had similar interests growing up and both had a passion for this or I'd say in different ways We're we're quite, we're 11 years age difference. So it's kind of hard to say. Um, but I know Morgan always was, she's a very compassionate person and really belongs in this type of field, I have to say. So, um, and we have an older sister as well, who was a editor for D magazine for a while and just went a totally different route. So I know we get pretty obnoxious at family dinners when we start to talk about our patients and (laughs) medical stuff and everybody else is like, okay, you know, (laughs) yeah, relax. Or like, can you take that like offline please? But, um, so yeah, it's, it's really, um, fun. And I kind of feel like Morgan, when you went into, uh, there's so many, just like SLP, so many different things that you can do as a dietitian, so many different areas you can work with. And so um, until she made the decision to go clinical, there was kind of that possibility that we wouldn't have as much overlap, but I'm glad that we do because I need it. I need, I need all that information. (laughs) I intuitively just copied everything you did in life. I was like, oh, I guess these are kind of similar. Like I didn't really do it just because she was in that field. And then once we got to both be in the acute care setting, I was like, oh my gosh, it happened again. I'm <laughs> in Dallas. I went to OU, followed you there. And here I am. <laughs> well, it's good. You had a, a big sister that had a, was a wonderful role model. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very lucky. <laughs> Could have gone horribly sideways, but yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Awesome. You guys. So what are we going to talk about today? So our focus today is mainly on end-of-life feeding decisions, integrating both nutrition and swallowing perspectives. And I've also asked Morgan to sprinkle in some additional nutrition-related information that I think we can all benefit from across all different settings. So to start us off, I wanted to pull some information from Raymond Fong's paper that examined speech therapy and palliative care and comfort feeding. Uh, current practice and way ahead. So the paper only integrated answers from 38 speech pathologists, which isn't a great sample size, but the paper did discuss that patients in palliative care may not opt for active medical interventions, and thus the goal of dysphagia management may be more supportive than rehabilitative. And we'll get into that a little bit more. What exactly does that mean when our role shifts? Um, It's definitely, we're just learned so much about the rehab and what to do to make things better and to help people get better. And when that isn't the goal, what happens? Everything's kind of thrown up in the air. What do we do with it? And there was an international survey of 332 participants in which 96% responded that speech therapists do have a role in serving patients with life-limiting illness. So 96% of these participants agree, yes, we do have a role in this uh, point in people's lives, but the area is under-resourced and poorly developed. 
And an interesting finding um, within this paper was that the terminologies within the feeding plan for patients receiving palliative care are inconsistent. So an alternative of tube feeding has been mentioned as all of these different things. It might be called careful hand feeding or careful spoon feeding or oral assisted feeding or risk feeding, all of these different terms that essentially mean the same thing, but sound so different. Uh, for me, the term risk feeding makes me feel weird. Like that's not really something I want to be a part of. But when I hear it as careful hand feeding, I'm thinking, yes, that sounds supportive and something that I feel like I have a role in. So the terms themselves may not be perceived as interchangeable uh, to the clinical team or to family members, but we're using them to all mean the same thing. So this is very evident that we do not have standardized use of terminology and that can absolutely hinder knowledge exchange and create misunderstanding among the multidisciplinary team members, ultimately affecting our patients' care. And so the survey also showed that SLP decision-making and involvement when presented with end-of-life feeding issues varied greatly with barriers to a standard approach of care, uh, including lack of resources, limited consensus among professionals in the workplace, limited consensus among speech therapists, limited training programs on this topic, and of course, our ethical considerations. And going back up to um, those 38 speech pathologists who were surveyed, and uh, you know, knowing that 96% of respondents consider speech therapists to have a role here, um, only about 20% of those speech therapists then said that they actively are following up with patients at this level of care. Huge disconnect. We know we, we belong, but we don't really know how we belong yes. um, a lot of the time in this population. I think that's just the major thing is, is not only are we polarized in, do we have a role in this? Do we not have a role in it? But if we do have a role in it, how much of a role, how far down the rabbit hole, where does our scope of practice end? Where does somebody like Morgan come in? So Exactly. And yeah. I was going to ask you, Morgan, do you get training in this and as a dietitian, is there a lot of education on end of life and your role at this point in a patient's where they are in palliative or end of right. life situations? Right. I was lucky enough to where when I was working in the acute setting, we had a really great palliative care doctor and a really great palliative team. And I'd have to ask a lot of questions. Like if, for example, if this patient is going more towards the hospice route, do we continue tube feeding? Do we take the tube out? Which is more comfortable? Which is going to make the family feel most comfortable? And I think those conversations, unfortunately, I had to learn kind of as I went in practice. Mm. And I feel like during school and internship, you, like you said, learn, how do we fix it? How do we rehab it? Where do we need to step in and get aggressive? And I think it took a lot of time in practice to learn when we step back. Sure. That's so interesting because I would think that for whatever reason, you would have more training on <laughs> what happens to the right. body at end of life. Um, and I was the same way. I didn't learn any of this until I was working in acute care. Um, and I'm an, an, by no means an expert in palliative. I just was so lucky to be surrounded by others who were experts and who gave me so much knowledge and education and allowed me to be a part of those conversations with families so that I could really learn not only 
what do we say about how do we say it? Um, and that really goes oh. to uh, Teresa, Dr. Barnett's podcast that y'all yeah. did. Incredible. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It pulled so much out of that even. So um, however many years I've been doing this, it's, you know, as we all know, we learn so much as we go, which is why uh, your podcast is so successful and that it's not just geared toward new clinicians, but seasoned clinicians as well. And um, we just have to stay on top of it because we're always yeah. learning new things. Um, so we know that the ethical considerations are a huge area that can really hold us back from feeling comfortable with uh, dealing with end of life situations. And a huge thing that I just that blew my mind about this certain population is how they may actually be perceiving comfort at the end of life. And we talk about how, you know, we think about how, how would this make me feel if somebody approached me and said, you know, it's time to really just stop feeding and using tube feeds with your loved one. And where does our mind go? We're going to starve them to death or they're going to get so thirsty and get uncomfortable. And, um, you know, we just assume that they're perceiving those things that we would ourselves perceive if somebody took our food and drink away. Um, and so it really holds us back from making good decisions when we don't have a good understanding of the pathophysiology of what's truly happening at the end of life. And so, you know, one of our big, you know, probably one of the most important things in our code of ethics is that we will do no harm. And we can't actively be a part of that if we don't understand what is the harm? What is the injury? Maybe some of the things we think that we're deciding to do with the patient for uh, the goodness of the patient really is actually creating more discomfort for them. Um, and that's where all of this starts to play in with the pathophysiology of, you know, what the end of life and Morgan's going to get into that more for us. And, but I did want to hit on that our subjective idea of how a person might be feeling may not align with that physiology. So we have to talk about what the mind and body do experience at the end of life to help make good decisions for our patients. And we know through our code of ethics, we have to act in the best interests of the patient, which in a lot of end of life feeding decision cases includes a lot of caregiver education and training and making sure that we stay up to speed on our own skills and knowledge. So before we dive into specifics in feeding and swallowing, I wanted Morgan to review some crucial concepts regarding nutrition support and how this relates to patient comfort at the end of life. And many times in the absence of a clear advanced directive, family members are faced with the decision as to when to discontinue nutrition and hydration support when that prognosis has been deemed as grave and irreversible. And that can be a very gradual process, uh, such as someone that has terminal illness, like a certain cancer or dementia, or it can be sudden and just happen out of nowhere, such as following life-saving measures after a traumatic car accident. So, uh, you know, a lot of times we know that we're operating without clear advanced directives. Um, I know Morgan and I just got our parents on board with finally getting their advanced <laughs> directives. Um, you know, we, we knew we've had discussions, but to have it on paper is so important. And I talked to my husband about that too. I'm like, we've got to get this on paper. We've had conversations, but in that moment when you're faced with it, just knowing that it's on paper so you can disconnect okay. from it is so important. I probably overtrained I, him. I'm like, I'm going to get a cold and he's going to be like, stop all the medications, just keep her comfortable. And it's like, I just have a cold. Everything's fine. Yeah. I think one of the things that just drives me bananas is I remember uh, working in one sniff, maybe about two, three years ago. 
And I just met this couple and they very, they, they knew each other's wishes, like very specifically, like if this happens, I want this done. If this happens, I want this done. And the facility just was not complying. And I was so angry. Like, and I remember talking to the nurse and I was like, you guys, it's literally written here. Like, I don't, why don't you understand this? And they're like, well, that's not the best for him. I'm like, it's not your decision to make. Like, and, and I think kind of from, watching that unfold, like in real time, just made me even more passionate about making sure everybody has it on paper. And we as medical professionals, it doesn't matter what we think is best. (laughs) It's not our job to, to say you're wrong. It should be this, like, it's not our place. Exactly. Right. Um, and okay, Morgan, I'm going to have you go through the different forms of, uh, artificial nutrition and hydration, just what, that might be from IVs to pegs and just the differences. Awesome. Sure. There are a lot of different kinds, as you guys may know, but I'm going to hit probably the most popular that we see in both acute and long-term care. So artificial nutrition and hydration can be abbreviated as A&H, and it's defined as a medical treatment that allows a person to receive food and fluid that they're not able to take by mouth. This can include IV fluids, tube feeding, and total parenteral nutrition, which you might know as TPN. Nutrition such as tube feeding can be administered through tubes placed through the nose or the mouth down to the stomach or small intestine, which can be a great tool in the acute setting when it's used for an an appropriate population. Tubes that are surgically inserted into the stomach for long-term use are known as PEG tubes. Parental nutrition, or TPN, is used when the patient's gut is not functioning properly or when the tube feeding access cannot be obtained. I would like to note that if a patient is well-nourished when assessed by a dietitian, TPN does not need to start until seven days of the patient being NPO. Did not know that. And I think this takes a lot of pressure. Mind blowing. Yeah. I think it takes a lot of pressure off of y'all's profession too. When you're getting pushed, we need to feed them. We need to feed them. And if they're well nourished, which is a piece of the puzzle that needs to be filled by the dietitian. I think that does take a lot of pressure off of you guys. And it decreases the risk of infection because we need line access for that TPN to start. There are certainly many times where ANH is a wonderful tool for speech pathologists and dietitians to better their care for patients. Um, some examples you guys might see in practice are NG tubes for a malnourished patient currently on the vent who clearly cannot swallow, a head and neck cancer patient that will require a PEG tube for the course of their chemo and radiation, and then hopefully will regain their swallowing after the course of their treatment with some rehab, or TPN being started on a malnourished patient with a bowel obstruction that will need to be resolved surgically and they cannot tolerate feeds into the stomach until the obstruction resolves. I think you can kind of see where these cases are headed. These patients' goals are to maintain a certain nutritional status to improve their overall medical condition. We're kind of moving towards a curative space rather than a palliative space. Totally, and they have a reversible condition, something that we are hoping that will heal with the treatment versus an irreversible condition, which is really where we start to go into that palliative care space. Right. And I think it's important to also mention that ANH is viewed as a medical intervention. It's not a basic human need, such as eating and drinking. So this means that ANH may be discontinued in cases where these risks outweigh the benefits. When this happens and ANH becomes risky for the patient, I think it's really hard for us clinicians to grasp because we associate feeding, even if it means through an IV or tube, we associate it as a basic human need that's equivalent to eating and drinking PO. But in specific cases, ANH may be working against a greater goal of keeping that patient comfortable in a terminal type of situation. 
Many, many position papers address the futility of ANH in specific end-of-life cases, such as persistent vegetative state and advanced dementia, which is mainly what we're going to talk about. So what happens when we get to this point and we're thinking about withdrawing nutrition at the end of life? I think many patients' families fear that if ANH is withheld or withdrawn, their loved ones will starve to death or suffer from hunger and thirst. And in fact, when we get to this point at end of life, the opposite is true. So feeding during the end of life stage will overwork organs that are actively trying to shut down, such as your stomach, intestines, and pancreas. After a meal, or in this case, tube feeding, the human body metabolizes glucose as a primary energy source. When we stop feeding the patient and glucose is no longer readily available, the body shifts using stored glycogen. So glycogen is little stores in our bodies that have glucose stored up for when our body needs to use it. It's kind of a reserve energy. Once we go through all of those reserves, then we switch to using free fatty acids from stored fat for our energy. This puts you in a state, as we probably have heard, as ketosis, kind of a buzzword right now, but very different when talked about in this population. (laughs) (laughs) Ketosis, when you're actively starving, has been associated with euphoria and even leads to internal opioid production. This means our patients actually feel more comfortable and pain-free when they're not using glucose, aka food or tube feeding, as an energy source. This is so fascinating. It, uh, It really is. It is. I know it's like we're working against the body's, you know, natural production of pain relief and comfort when we feel the need to continue to beats. And this is, yeah, this is amazing. You guys, I, I I get so many questions about why I keep doing this podcast because we've been going for three years now and they're like, aren't you sick of these topics? Are you running out of topics? This is going to blow so many people's mind. There's so many people in our field that don't know any of that. I don't know this stuff. I didn't know this stuff. So I didn't either. Yeah. It's yeah. It's incredible. Still blowing my mind. body's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, keep going, Morgan. I want to know more. Oh, yeah. Another, another benefit of withholding nutrition is that when the stomach is empty for a period of time, it will reduce gastric stimulation that communicates up to the hypothalamus and it'll stop sending those hunger signals. Yes. So I think that's a really important nugget for these families to realize is that mm-hmm. they're no longer getting those responses saying, I'm hungry which we'll kind of talk more later if they are reaching for foods or start to ask kind of what to do safely from a speech standpoint. Yeah. But I think that was really comforting for me to know that they just, that's probably the first thing to go. Right. Um, So if we know that switching to a fasting state leads to euphoria, opioid production and results in pain relief, reduced anxiety and reduced hunger signals. If you think about that on a personal level, I think we know which we would choose for ourselves. I know what I would want. (laughs) (laughs) So in the speech and dietitian world, I think one of the biggest forms of ANH we see are PEG tubes, which are the tubes that are surgically inserted into the stomach or can be inserted even into the small intestine for long-term tube feeding. The experts largely agree that PEG tube feeding is of little benefit for these patients with a limited lifespan or with advanced dementia. The general recommendation is that a PEG is only used for four conditions, which as a dietitian, it's kind of crazy saying that out loud, only four. Mm -hmm. Head and neck cancer, acute stroke with dysphagia, neuromuscular dystrophy syndromes, and gastric decompression. So really, in the speech world, there's probably just three of the out of those four where we're really, um, you know, consulted because obviously for the gastric decompression, you know, totally different purpose there. So that is so interesting. Right. 
So when you think about patients with dementia, these PEG tube feedings rarely contribute to a better nutritional status, a longer life, nor does it minimize suffering or improve functional status like we talked about earlier. Um, it does not prevent skin breakdown or pressure ulcers when PEG tubes are inserted in these patients with advanced dementia moving towards the end stage of life. Like we talked about, those organs are trying to shut down. They're not secreting as many enzymes. The bolus that they're taking through the PEG tube is not being accepted as the body like it would in a functional body. So they're not going to absorb these nutrients like we would. It also increases the risk of aspiration in patients with dementia-related dysphagia. And I think as dietitians, that was kind of something we tend to jump to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, they can't swallow. Where's the PEG tube? Right. Let's take a step back and think, what is the long-term solution? What's the long-term plan of care for this patient? And not how do we immediately start feeding them? So how can all of this be? I think the risk may be attributed to a decline in renal function, which also increases pulmonary and oral secretions at the end of life as well. There's also a high risk of them refluxing those aspirated tube feedings. So with all of that said, tube feeding is therefore not recommended by experts for patients with advanced dementia. In patients with chronic illness, studies have even found that PEG tube feedings do not improve mortality. Yeah, it's so incredible that you can pump, literally pump protein into a body And when it's at that end of life phase, it won't even absorb and use the protein to help with pressure ulcers or or tissue healing or things that it would um, at a different stage of life. So it it really is, uh, you know, all signs we can feel it pointing in the same direction once we really start to think about that even when we're making efforts, they're not doing what they need to do. They're actually making things worse. And uh, that renal failure and increase in pulmonary and oral secretions is, is another thing that I would just never have thought of as a speech pathologist. And knowing that by pumping things in and then increasing these secretions and then potentially aspirating even just those microorganisms from the mouth and contributing to an aspiration pneumonia, we're in this horrible, vicious cycle of discomfort for that patient. And the feeding part makes sense to me. I think once you look at all of those facts of which organs are used for digestion, mm-hmm. these organs aren't working like they used to. The withdrawing of feeds, I think that people might come to that quicker than they do with IV fluids. Mm-hmm. I think as a clinician and even as a family member, those questions come up. Don't we want patients to stay hydrated? It's the last thing we hold on to. Okay, maybe they can go without food, but then what about hydrating them? Right. Yeah. What about electrolyte abnormalities? Mm -hmm. Um, Won't they be thirsty? Will they be comfortable? Will this prolong survival? So I want to talk a little bit more about IV fluids. They do seem like a, quote, less invasive form of ANH, but withholding fluids at the end of life have very similar positive effects as withholding feeding. Administering IV fluids at the end of life may lead to fluid overload. That also leads to uncomfortable edema, which I think as we've seen with patients, it is definitely not comfortable. Right. Dehydration can also lead to hypernatremia, which is elevated serum levels of sodium. This has been shown to decrease the nervous response to pain. It also decreases rates of urinary incontinence and the need for uncomfortable catheter placement, which we also know is extremely uncomfortable. Yes. If the body is not producing adequate amounts of urea from being fed, this will reduce patient's fluid requirements, which also diminishes the sensation of being thirsty. So kind of the same thing those signals aren't going to be sent up saying, I'm thirsty, I need something. If you notice things like cracked lips 
or then reaching for ice cubes, things like that. I think Lindsay will touch more on that later. Mm -hmm. But as far as IV fluids to meet 100% of their current fluid needs, that's kind of what I'm moving towards right now. And although it seems counterintuitive, the absence of ANH at the end of life is actually associated with an increased sense of euphoria, decreased hunger, thirst, pain, incontinence, and edema. So just another set of facts that show these things are doing more harm than good at this stage of life. Are you doing fees, but you're not really happy with your software? Are you missing audio recording to complement your voice? Is your system lacking frame-by-frame, fast-forward, or slow-motion review? Is there no integrated fees report with your system? If your answer to any of these questions is yes, I highly recommend getting in touch with our friends at PatCom Medical, because honestly, these features are game-changers. They offer a software solution that includes everything you can wish for when doing fees, and it will work with any system, no matter the brand. You can reach them at info at patcommedical.com or visit www.patcommedical.com. That's P-A-T-C-O-M-M-E-D-I-C-A-L.com. So with all that being said, Lindsay, what do you think speech therapists are seeing in practice right now across all settings regarding nutrition support? Well, despite what the literature shows us regarding peg tube feedings and advanced dementia, there's definitely a big disconnect with what we typically see in practice. And there was this study by uh, Menderada and colleagues that found that peg tube placement in elderly adults increased 38% from 1993 to 2003, and one in 10 of those PEG-2 placements were occurring in patients with dementia. And it's also difficult to determine the exact proportion of nursing home residents with dementia who do have a PEG, but the estimated range is from 5.4% to 34%, so a nice big range. And a survey of speech pathologists found that only 22% were aware that tube feeding was unlikely to reduce the risk of aspiration in advanced dementia patients with dysphagia. So about 80% felt that a a peg tube would help with reducing the risk of aspiration in this population. So why are peg tubes recommended all the time despite evidence? (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, treatment decisions about end-of-life nutrition are rarely based on evidence alone. So Many other considerations include things like provisions and advanced directives, if they have them, uh, cultural, religious, and ethical beliefs, legal and financial concerns, and of course, our emotions. Uh, Some view withholding tube feeding as actively starving the patient and feel ethically or morally obligated to insert that peg tube. So definitely a disconnect with what Morgan just taught us about the pathophysiology and how we're, we're personally feeling about you know, oh, what if we, what if this ends up starving our patient? Um, Others surmise that artificial nutrition and hydration might have benefits at the end of life, even though the evidence has failed to show any. Some family members may be emotionally unable to participate in discussions on the subject. It's definitely not an easy subject and the evidence is very hard to process. So kind of going back to, if you haven't already listened to Dr. Barnett's episode, highly recommend it, Um, especially the concept of let's meet the patient and families where they are with their knowledge of all of these things. So we have all the statistics, we see the disconnect, but we can't just assume that our patient or our family member knows everything or knows nothing on the subject. Um, So we really need to start by asking them, what have you heard about 
dementia. What have you heard about swallowing and the decline in swallowing and uh, with this diagnosis and, and trying to gather what they already, what they've already learned or what they already know or think that they might know on the subject. And then we can meet them there with all of this great knowledge and have a nice discussion about, you know, the ultimate goal, which is keeping the patient comfortable and allowing that this family to have enough quality time or as much quality time as possible with their loved one. And I'm going to discuss quickly another research study that helped me immensely with having conversations about what patients are perceiving at this stage. And it's the McCann study that looked at terminally ill patients and what their perceptions of thirst and hunger were at the end of life. So I personally associate, you know, withholding food and drink as pure torture. Um, I could never be a faster. I just, you know, to me, that just sounds like the worst thing ever. And so, again, I really, I understand if somebody then presented that as an option or a recommendation for my family member, it would be very difficult to wrap my brain around that. So uh, this particular study looked at mentally aware, competent patients with terminal illnesses and they were all residing in a comfort care unit. So the study looked at perceptions of hunger and perceptions of thirst and dry mouth over a 12-month period. And the subjective level of comfort was assessed in all of these patients. So there were 32 patients monitored during this 12 months. And out of that whole 12 months, 63% of those patients never experienced hunger and 34% of them only had symptoms of hunger initially. And 62% of those patients experienced uh, no thirst or thirst only initially at the very uh, beginning phases of that illness. And in all of these patients, those symptoms of hunger, thirst, and dry mouth were alleviated with just very small amounts of food, very small amounts of liquid, uh, and simply by the application of ice chips to the lips. So these terminally ill patients generally did not experience hunger, and those who did only needed small amounts of food for that alleviation. Same with thirst. So the food and liquid administration beyond the specific requests of patients probably plays a very minimal role in providing comfort to them. So if we can follow the patient's lead, even if it's just a couple of sips or even just some ice chips and some mouth care, that's likely exactly what they need to maintain their comfort. And so again, that study was just really powerful in having conversations with family members about, you know, our, the loved one usually can't tell us how they're feeling. So we're just having to make assumptions. And so let's take some information from this actually recorded subjective information to help with uh, factoring into this decision-making and all of that goes into comfort feeding plans. And we'll definitely talk about that in a minute. Um, but I wanted Morgan to quickly also touch on when things like appetite stimulants or oral nutrition supplements might be recommended versus when they might be an inappropriate recommendation for a patient. Absolutely. I think as we've talked about when family members start to see their family take turns of, okay, now they're not experiencing hunger. We've got to fix this. There's got to be something else we can do to bring this back. I think that's almost harder for them to grasp than other medical interventions that are no longer being done. It makes sense. Feeding is something that we all do. We're all comfortable with, we all have control over. So I Mm -hmm. think this might be the most important piece is learning what goals are we setting for this patient? Where's their plan of care headed and how are we going to, bridge that gap and make an appropriate decision. 
something like an appetite stimulant would absolutely not be appropriate for someone heading towards this end of life palliative stage. As far as nutrition supplements, which can be any kind of modulator to add volume, calories, or protein to a patient's regimen, these are primarily used for patients with continued anorexia or unresponsive weight loss, and their purpose is to meet their nutrition needs to improve their condition. These can include patients with cancer, patients recovering from acute illness such as sepsis, or a patient recovering from a surgical procedure. If the patient has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, efforts to add more calories may be futile as this will not improve their underlying condition as it's terminal. And as we talked about, the absorption just isn't there. As far as appetite stimulants, at this point, as we talked about, hunger is usually the first thing to go, meaning that the patient will not show any hunger cues or signs. Plus, some appetite stimulants take weeks to show any positive effects. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. You have to take it consistently, and it usually can take up to two to three weeks for any patients to notice any kind of increased hunger cues. With this terminal population, though, a goal to increase their appetite, calories, volume of intake, that is probably not the most comfortable and realistic expectation for them. And does the patient really want this if they're no longer experiencing these hunger and thirst sensations? Right. So I think one of the most confusing parts of all of this is that it's not cut and dry. And like we said, we don't just walk in one day and decide, okay, we have now made the shift over to comfort measures only. And it's just this easy, you know, path. It's, it's difficult. There can be a lot of ups and downs, um, especially when we're looking at advanced dementia, uh, you know, patients that might have a acute illness that can be reversed and then they kind of go back to their baseline. Right. So it's not always just a steady progression, toward this, you know, end of life situation. So we can, the family is riding on this roller coaster with the patient through all of these ups and downs. And so I think that also can make it very challenging to get to that acceptance phase when we truly are at that point where we cannot reverse the symptoms and, and we're just have, you know, reached this point. So I think it's important to speak to family members about this as well. If you're, especially in acute care, we'd see this a lot, patients who were eating at the, you know, they were residing in a skilled nursing facility, they were eating, they get a UTI, they get admitted to the hospital. Now they're NPO, they're not alert. And what do we do? Do we drop a tube? Do we just continue to do reavals every day? Do we do an instrumental exam? Where do we go from here? And it is okay for us just to take a step back to get with the medical team and say, do you think we can reverse this condition? That is the treatment that is needed at that time. You know, we don't need to come in guns a blazing and just start trying to, you know, get them to eat because as Morgan had mentioned, it can, we can hold off for a while up to seven days, right? Before really feeling that press to, to get food inside or to get nutrition inside. So um, allowing the team to do what they need to do to try to reverse these issues and then go in to see, okay, are we back at our baseline now that we've solved that acute issue? Um, other issues other than just, you know, UTI is a good example. We see that all the time. Sometimes it can be over sedation for medication. You know, we just need to let the patient work that through and then 
ta-da, back at baseline. Uh, sometimes it can be thrush, uh, you know, anywhere in the mouth, all the way down into the esophagus that needs to be cleared. And then we'll get this person eating and drinking again. And um, sometimes it can be just temporary changes in uh, their level of consciousness. I think right now, because of COVID and all of the isolation, it's been a huge problem. Uh, we're seeing lots of decline and a lot of weight loss and a lot of issues with just that being able to maintain alertness because of the isolation. So a lot of issues that we can really try our, our best to try to reverse. And then we reassess to see, did that help this person get back to their baseline? So um, that's not always going to be the case. Um, you know, where we've we've done everything we can to try to reverse the condition and we're just still here where the patient isn't wanting to eat, they're refusing foods and liquids, and we need to let the family know we really have done everything we can to reverse any kind of acute issue that might be factoring into this presentation. But despite all of our efforts, this is this is where we are. And so let's really talk about what the next plan is going to be uh, for this person. Um, and again, I mean, I'm sure p- families probably go through years of that, you know, 10 years mm-hmm. of riding that roller coaster and then their loved one bounces back. And of course, you're going to feel that that's going to happen every time. Um, yeah, we send them out to the hospital and then they resolve those issues. And then here we are back at uh, where we started. And um, so I'm sure that's just got to be a shock when you reach that point where those types of uh, acute interventions aren't appropriate or aren't working anymore. And so you really are kind of in the shock of, oh my gosh, we really are needing to have this conversation now. And then we kind of talked about the, you know, if we know that somebody's admitted to the hospital, Morgan, and they have an acute infection and we're anticipating that to clear up within a few days, would you wait do you think the team would wait to drop an NG tube or would they want the NG tube in to start feedings? What What are your thoughts there? It really depends on their nutrition status of when they got to the hospital. If a dietitian has assessed them and claimed them as malnourished, then interventions are going to look a lot different than a well-nourished patient. So that time frame and the window that you have to intervene and drop an NG tube is going to be different for those two because the malnourished patient will have a bigger risk of declining quicker Mm. if they don't get that nutrition because they're already at such a depleted baseline. How do you measure that? Nutrition-focused physical exams, weight (laughs) history, intake before admission, lab values, the list goes on. And don't worry about that. That's a dietitian's job, girl. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to get in your your, uh, space there. In my lane? Yeah, totally. But it's... um, Come on over. It's interesting to all of that type of data collection that you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then if there's not a reliable source to even give you baseline, then you're just kind of stuck having to use, I guess, lab values and information, uh, visual exams and things like that to, to figure out where you would place them and that how malnourished are they and sort of thing. Sure. And I think we had those conversations a lot during rounds, the speech therapist and I would even talk on the phone after seeing a patient, I'd call and say, Hey, I think this patient, you know, they're doing pretty well. They could probably put off another day if you think that they're going to be alert and oriented enough tomorrow to try a swallow eval. Yeah, that's great. It, it, it's very case by case. Interesting. Let me ask you, Morgan, do you guys do a lot of like nurse education? Like I just think of so many times where like I would get calls frantically to come see a patient. Like we have to get them on a diet today or else we have to start TPN tonight, you know? And so, so I think so much of kind of the, the panic I think could be calmed by just some education. That's a really, really good point. And I think a lot of that chatter would come up during daily rounds Oh, this patient's MP a day two dietitian consult, yeah. speech consult, which in some cases that is appropriate, but I think that was a really good time for me to bring to the table 
hey, speech is on board. They weren't alert enough to have a swallow eval. They're nourished. They're in a good place. Once this UTI resolves, we'll go from there. And those quick educations, I think it sticks with them because once that next patient comes along with this presenting with the same case, nursing education is probably the biggest component. I agree. And it's that, I think it's also their, the pressure put upon them to give medications. It's not always about get them on a diet. It's how am I going to get the meds in? And I don't have a good solution for that. Um, When (laughs) we have someone that needs meds, they're not alert. We don't want to put them through dropping an NG if we think they could be, you know, what things could be administered through Mm -hmm. IV. It's, it's not just one person's decision. And, and I agree with you, Teresa, I feel like working in acute care, it was just so Mm -hmm. much weight placed upon my shoulders to, it's like I had this magic wand where I could walk in and make people alert so they could take their medications. And I just don't have that ability. And uh, then you feel like you're just doing this huge disservice to the whole team and that you're disappointing everybody and, or they're just showing all of these signs and symptoms. You can't you know, progress them just at bedside with the next steps and can't get an instrumental until the next day. And then it's like, ah, speech therapy, you're ruining everything. And yeah, yeah. Um, I just think of in the, in the sniff setting, cause I've just had that happen like a few times, you know, where the nurse and the sniff was like, well, we have to send them out to the hospital tonight because we don't place TPN here, you know, so we could, like I said, I think just calm all that panic of having to transfer a, you know, pretty sick patient. Absolutely. Unnecessarily. Yes. And I think that's hard too, because in that in long-term care, you're not going to always have your dietitian that you can link arms with and say, let's go have these discussions together because we're all stretched. Right. You know, we don't, we're, we're, we're working at multiple buildings or, you know, it, it, there's a lot of challenges there. So Morgan, maybe you need to do like a con, con some sort of consultative service that you could do. <laughs> you could do online to like, you know, to be that person for, for facilities or something. Maybe we just started I a new business. Be everybody there. at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause sometimes it is just that a lot of fear and panic and, and unnecessary, you know, things being done to the patient could be alleviated just by that education right. and by that team approach. So so helpful knowing all of these little nuggets. Appreciate you educating us on all of this. And I think really the last piece for where do we go from here? You know, we've kind of talked about that progression of now, now we've made the decision. We've, we've all decided we're going to go comfort measures. And what do we do now as speech pathologists? A lot of us don't know now, what do we do? What's our role here? And unfortunately we don't have a standard of care in this type of situation. And there's some good literature that's looking at our role, but um, again, it's, it just looks different depending on where you work and the, your mentorship and comfort levels. And I, similar to Morgan, I did have a fantastic palliative team that took me in and, and I I learned a lot. And without that, I would have just signed off. I would have not have felt comfortable going in and, and working through comfort plans with family members and patients um, because I just didn't have the knowledge um, to, to go in and have those conversations and to really know that I was doing the right thing for the patient. And so some things that we can do as speech pathologists is trying to really promote that idea of what's comfortable for the patient. And as Morgan had mentioned, there's absolutely going to be times when our patients will ask, wake up and ask for water. 
they might reach for their uh, some soup or pudding or whatever their favorite food is. And our role and from what I read in the literature and from experience is to use careful hand feeding. That's the term that I'm going to use. <laughs> you might hear it as something else, risk feeding or something else at your uh, facility, but using those approaches to show good positioning, uh, you know, let's set the patient all the way up. Let's do some really nice mouth care with them. Let's allow them to have some very small sips of this liquid or some uh, some ice chips or some drinks of fluids and see how they respond to it. And in certain cases, the gunner can be our friend, which we don't feel that way all the time when we're working with, you know, more acute types of situations. But in this case, sometimes the oral control is just, you know, so weak and it's just not there. And you might go in to see a patient and they're just coughing and so strangled on thin fluids. So we try a little thickener at bedside. I normally would never say to do that. But in this case, we don't care about aspiration. We know that that's, we have shifted away from that that idea of we're here for aggressive measures for rehabilitation and to prevent all of these things. We're now coming in to be facilitative for our patient. If they are showing signs of, I want a little bite of food or a little sip of liquid, we're there to support that and not restrict them from that. Um, Sometimes put a little thickener in, it might do the trick to give them just enough control over the bolus to be able to clear it comfortably. And we're looking only for signs of discomfort. Um, We could really, at this point in their care, again, we're not there to try to figure out the physiology and exactly why it's happening or what's happening. Um, Let's just get them what they're asking for and get get that to them in the most comfortable way. A lot of training here, you know, even after what I felt like I was doing extensive, you know, training in this type of realm, sometimes I'd still go in the next day and I see family pouring, you know, eight ounces of water into their loved one's mouth while they're basically asleep. And they feel just so much pressure to get the fluids in, get the food in, um, despite all of that education. So continuing to model for them good uh, techniques for a few sips here if the patient's wanting it. If their mouth looks dry and you want to do some lubrication on the lips and some ice chips on the lips, then go for it. If you see them, you know, clenching their mouth and turning away, that means they don't want it anymore. And learning how to read the patient's cues. We take that away sometimes, I think, in healthcare. It's It's such a, you know, a lot of responsibility to make medical decisions for someone that can't voice that for themselves. And so we start to get super technical and, um, you know, we forget to include the patient. And at this stage of life, life, it's incredible how there are so many signals and signs that we can use to help guide families. It's so amazing for the family to feel like they can comfortably love on their loved one again. And along in that same vein, if the patient really is just looking so uncomfortable or refusing PO or they're just not alert enough, we can, we can show them other ways to love on their, their loved one. Uh, You know, warm washcloth on the face, let's uh, get some lotion and rub it on their hands, rub it on their feet. You know, there's other ways to make that contact with their loved one. That's not just about eating and drinking. So uh, modeling that is such a powerful thing. And, you know, we want to give again, our family, those family members, those moments with their loved one. That's really what they're looking for. We relate it to eating and drinking because we all love to eat and drink, but there's so many other things that we can do to to give them that time. Um, And we're supposed to be the communication specialists here, right? So uh, nonverbal cues from the patient, you know, what, what is, what is the patient showing us and what are, what are they wanting? We really need to tie that in. 
Um, and the last thing I was going to touch on quickly is uh, what, how does CMS feel about all of this? Um, like you had mentioned, Teresa, like sometimes facilities are not down with the advanced directives or might be saying, oh, well, we have to do a waiver or that sort of thing. So CMS, um, you know, definitely does support in their manual, their state operations manual, that all care and services provided for nutrition and hydration, including comfort, should be based on the resident's choices and results of a pertinent nutritional assessment. Thank you, Morgan. Um, CMS acknowledges that when end-of-life care is provided according to an individualized care plan that gives priority to the resident's choices, residents with terminal conditions may fail to meet acceptable parameters of nutritional status. And as long as that facility has documentation that the plan was discussed with the resident and the surrogate care uh, decision maker, then CMS is not likely to question the use of hand feeding rather than tube feeding for a terminally ill resident. And in 2011, the Pioneer Network published the new dining practice standards, a comprehensive document that makes recommendations for nutrition care in skilled nursing facilities. And CMS was involved in developing those standards and encourages facilities to adopt their recommendations. And in the new dining practice standards state that when oral feeding strategies for terminally ill patients fail, tube feeding should not be automatically pursued. And the standards encourage facilities to base decisions about tube feeding on discussions with the relevant party, as to the patient or the patient surrogate decision maker, ensuring that decisions are aligned with the patient's informed choices, goals, and preferences, rather than basing decisions on the patient's diagnosis alone. Um, so there you have it. <laughs> and how much better does it sound thinking about yourself or a loved one to offer them something with your hands, a bite of pudding, mm-hmm. a sip of orange juice, rather than walking in and seeing them hooked up to all of these things in their last days and remembering those moments, putting chapstick on them, offering their favorite Dr. Pepper or whatever it may be. And having those moments, I think for me, just made this so clear, mm-hmm. trying to picture it as myself or mom or dad or a family member, what I could do in that moment just to make them feel more comfortable right. rather than, you know, pushing aggressive measures. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I would want a Diet Coke personally. <laughs> Mashed potatoes for me, please. Maybe some wine. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is awesome. You guys, this has been, this has been so eye opening. So thank you so much. I think, you know, it's, I love what we do. I love our profession. And I think so many, you know, everybody got into it to help people and we think we're helping people and little do we know that some of our actions are doing the opposite. So I know a lot of people will be very happy to hear this information and hopefully change, change their perspective on things. So definitely. Thank you so much, you guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Any, any final thoughts? I don't think so. Um, we do have um, a uh, some of the information is pulled from a webinar course that's available at Carolina Speech Pathology um, under the self study courses. So if you want to go through and listen to some of the information again, and there's some additional information about exactly how to develop a comfort feeding plan and how to document that, uh, and then you'll get CUs for it. So that is available on the Carolina Speech website. Awesome. And then Morgan has a great Instagram for just dietitian stuff. If you want to share that with us, Morgan, yes. and we can follow awesome. you. It is Morgan Mindy, 
M-E-N-D-Y underscore R-D-N is the handle. Cool. Awesome. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Morgan. I'll start following you. Thank you. Yes. All right. All right. Yeah, I loved it. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm like, anytime I get to do a little sister Absolutely. duo action, <laughs> it gives me all the feels. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, you guys. This has been so great. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.